So that's three. We're not all God's children. Number four, God won't give you more than you can handle. Please. The, uh, there is a young boy that I was a youth pastor of. I didn't tell you his name. It's his, his name is Wes Wechter. Um, his brother, Kyle, used to come here sometimes with Jeff. True. Uh, Wes, I was, um, went to the uh, Wesleyan Church in Charles City when I was the youth pastor there years and years and years ago. Wes now is married and has three beautiful babies. Four beautiful babies, thank you. Um, but the, it's the oldest boy, isn't it? The oldest boy has cancer. A very similar story to my brother's story. And so he has to go through chemotherapy and radiation. Starting to lose his hair. I was looking at the website the other day, and um, they showed the picture of the tumor that was removed. And this little guy, he's a little guy. He's a little guy. And that tumor was huge. And it had um, exploded when they took it out. And so cancer cells went into his body. He has a port cut here where they have to do, I don't know what all they do with that. But, um, then they had a vehicle that got wrecked. Every week they have to go to Iowa, Iowa City, to do radiation, chemo, and that type of stuff, and blood check every week. He can't go to school. He can't play outside. He's contained inside. That's, that's his life, inside. His mom quit working because somebody has to stay home with these babies now. And so she doesn't work. Wes works, and he's, he works hard. Uh, but they don't have a lot of money. They don't have anything, to be completely honest with you. The only vehicle they had recently was wrecked by a friend that borrowed it. And then they take their second, or the third youngest, third to youngest, one, one-year checkup. Um, and the doctor is worried about the size of his head. And they tell Wes's wife that the doctors have actually been concerned about the size of the head for a few months, and they've been watching it. Now you can imagine what a daddy feels like. Wait a minute, I'm just now hearing about this, and you're telling us to, it's now the time to rush our baby to the hospital in Iowa City, and we're just now hearing about it. So as I'm reading this post, he then makes this statement. I have always been told that God will not give you more than you can handle. And then a few choice words were written down. And it was a kid who basically has been lied to about God, saying, I'm done with God because of these lies. Now imagine that. I challenge you to find any place in Scripture where the Bible says God will not give you more than you can handle. Let me show you the Scripture that people like to, like to point out. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 18. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. Why does it say 18? All right, somebody tell me God will not... Let you go through a temptation more than you can handle. Help me out. Right, help me out with that verse number. For some reason, I wrote 2 Corinthians 18, and there is no 18. Maybe, wait, wait, wait. Maybe I got something here.
Oh, I tell you what, go with me to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 9. We'll get to the other one here in just a second. 2 Corinthians, it's supposed to be 1, you know, semicolon 8-9. It wasn't. So 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. This is Paul writing. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Sounds like Paul is describing a circumstance that was more than he could handle. The affliction we experience in Asia, for we are so utterly be- burdened beyond our strength, beyond our strength, says it's more than I can handle. Why? Why did this happen? Indeed, we felt that we received the death sentence. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It was so hard, we felt like we were going to die. It was more than we could handle. And the reason being is so that we would rely on God who raises the dead. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. This entire world is more than we can handle. I mean, really, let's just get this straight. Let's, let's do a little theology here really quick. When Adam and Eve sinned, God came and hunted them down. They ran from God. They were ashamed and embarrassed. God found them. Then God goes through this litany uh, of you did this, so this is what you get. You did this, this is what you get. He curses the earth to work against us. That's in Genesis. That's the beginning. So at the beginning of our existence, this world started working against us. And the reason being is so that we would stop relying on our stupid selves. That's the truth. This world works against you. It will rain and it will sunshine on the good and the bad, and the just and the unjust. People die because their sin. Their sin may not have killed him. Just sin, period. The death sentence comes from the fact that there's sin in this world. Really, really bad things happen to good and bad people. If you're older than one, you've experienced something bad in your life that that you feel like you don't deserve. That's just the truth of it. Bad things happen. And most of the time, Really bad things happen that are beyond anything you can handle yourself. And the reason, as Paul says, is so that you stop depending on yourself and start depending on the God who raises the dead. Think about that. So that you will depend on the God who raises 
the dead. Most of the time, we face tragedy in our own strength. And then we get ticked off at God because He gave us more than we can handle. Now, I felt bad when I read that from Wes. It, it broke my heart. I immediately wrote him and said, I'd like to meet with you and your wife and get some coffee or something. He said, I'll talk to her and get back to you. I haven't heard back from him yet, but I'm hoping I can meet with him very soon. It breaks my heart that somebody lied to this kid all of his life and told him that God will not give you more than you can handle. Again, this whole world is more than you can handle. Diana, was it more than you could handle when your son died? Yeah. So who are you kidding? Yeah, it's more than you can handle. It's more than you can handle. And it all is meant to lead you to him who, can't, who cannot just handle it, but he can take your dead situation and bring it back to life. That's the beauty. What's the, what's the bad? What's the tragedy in telling people this lie? The problem is when we believe this and life gets really, really hard, instead of running to the God who can bring us help and comfort and peace, we run from him and resent him. That's the problem. Number five, we're almost done. We're almost done. When you die, God gains another angel. Oh my gosh. This one just kills me. I could also write, you know, like we all have guardian angels with really big wings. No, you don't know that. Only there's a couple different angels in the Bible that are described with wings, and they surround God's throne. That's it. All the other time you see angels, they kind of look like you and me. I mean, it's just the truth of it. When you die, God gets another angel. Go with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And look at verse 3. Paul is telling the Corinthian church to quit suing one another. Quit going to the the secular courts and suing one another over problems. And this is his reasoning why. Verse 3, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So in other words, if you got a problem, quit going to the secular courts, bring it to the church, and discuss it and work the problems out there. Because one day, you're going to be judging angels. What angels is he talking about? He's talking about the fallen angels that fell with Lucifer um, and, and rebelled against God. Paul is telling you that after, the, after Jesus returns, and it says the dead, both good and evil, are raised from the ground, and there is this great throne judgment, and those who he separates to his right and his left, the good, you know, the lambs, the goats. You read that in Matthew. He puts in your hands the judgment of the fallen angels. It's an understandable sentiment that when this person dies, 
God's gained a guardian angel, or God's gained a little angel. And they're, they're guarding and watching over you. This actually trickles down uh, from many of our European histories, a pagan uh, histories that were part of, of the religions of our forefathers. They're Druids. Uh, the word heathen comes from those who work on the heath. They're just farmers. Farmers really, back in the day, loved ancestral worship. Uh, these principles, these ideas probably came more from that type of thing, more folk religion, that was part of, of our culture, our history as human beings. And, and it trickles, parts of that stuff trickle down. You ever seen angels or, or holy people with halos? I mean, they're never found in the Bible, but they're all over our Christian paintings. Well, the halo comes from Babylon. And it just trickled down. The concept that you turn into an angel when you die is part of an old, ancient cult history. And it just mingles into our Christian beliefs somehow. The sentiment's understandable. When you lose somebody that's close to you, you want to believe, one, that they're special and that God has honored them for, their, for them being special. And so turning them into an angel kind of makes sense. Two, you want to know that they're still there. You don't want to think of them as being gone. You want to think of them as still being there somehow. And so why not talk about them as a guardian angel? Maybe you can't see them or hear them, but you just, you can believe they're always there watching your back. Now, I get that sentiment. It makes sense to me. I can understand why we would do it. But the truth is, and, and this is far the Bible's truth is always far more powerful than the flimsy lies we live on most of the time. The truth is that God, for a time, has made you a little lower than the angels. But when you are resurrected and you have been perfected, you'll be judging the angels. The only thing higher then your status will be God himself. Because he made you in his image and his likeness, and that image and that likeness will be perfected in the resurrection. You will look in the sense of holiness like Jesus. That you, when you die, you don't become an angel. Your spirit is with the Father, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're, you're, not, you're not an angel. You don't have wings. You don't get to make people fall in love. You don't, get to, you don't even get to roam around. You know? You're not roaming around the earth. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But your future, the future of those who are in Christ, is far greater than any future an angel could ever hope for. Angels, listen to me, angels long to have your place. That's the truth. They long to have your place. You are a special creation by God. You were the only ones created in his image and likeness. No angel did he ever call son. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. And because of the only son, he calls every one of you 
sons and daughters. No angel gets that. No angel gets that. Six. We all worship the same God. All right. Go with me if you would. Deuteronomy 4.35. I'm going to make this one really quick. Um, but I, I, want, I want you to get the, the weight of this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. We all worship the same God. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. So the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Now go with me, if you would, Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Okay, we get in the picture. There is one God and there is none like him. Now, the truth is, there is one God. There is only one God. Period. So, in a sense... When it, when it says we all worship the same God, how about you could say it like this? You could say it like this: um, there is only one God to worship. Okay? There is only one God. But as Romans tells us, go, go there with me if you would. Romans chapter one, verse twenty-five. It says because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. They exchanged the truth about, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is where, this is where we answer this question. Do we, all serve, or do we all worship the same God? There is only one God to be worshiped, but we all don't worship the same God. The truth is, as human beings, you are prone to worship anything and everything other than God. Plain and simple. Let me give you some great examples. Parents worship their children many times more often than they worship God. Boys and hormones worship sex. Plain and simple. Boys with hormones worship power. Girls, they love to worship love. Love. From the time they're three, they plan their wedding. They have the perfect match in their minds. Oh, love. I love counseling people at wedding times. I, lo I enjoy it. You know, why do you love this person? Because they make me feel so good. You are not ready for marriage. You don't love them. But we worship love. We worship love. You see, we have a tendency to worship everything that God created that is good and try to worship it as a God rather than worship the God who created it. And this has been going on. And the same characters that we worship today, we've always been trying to worship. Today, we give them English names in America. Like I said, love, sex, power, victory, 
money. These are items we worship in this culture, and they have been worshipped from the very beginning. Let me give you some names of these items. Uh, They're very, very interesting. Love, eros. The God, eros. Oh, she could make any man love any woman, and any woman fall in love with any man. And if I just worship her enough, this hot little girl will fall in love with me one day. Or this man that will protect and take care of me, he'll fall in love with me. Eros. Um, Sex, I can't even pronounce this one, him eros. Um, Basically, it's eros, and they put a him on it. Go figure. Go figure. Power, Nike. The god Nike. The winged God that gave you power for victory. That was the Roman version. Uh, if you were a gladiator, Nike was your God. Plain and simple. Because you wanted victory, because if you didn't get victory, you died. Right? And you got to meet Hades. So, it was better to worship Nike than Hades. Right? These are the same gods. Money, manna. Pray to the God manna so that you could get more manna. These are the same gods we still worship today. So we don't worship, not everybody is worshiping the same god. The truth of the matter is 99% of the world is not worshiping a god at all. That's the truth. They're worshiping the created things. And here's where the problem is. And this is a serious problem. You have girls that worship boyfriends. You know, young men that worship this and that, and, and parents that worship their babies. And, I mean, it's just chaos. And here's why it's chaos. God didn't create anything to be worshipped. He alone is to be worshipped. Now, in worshipping Him, He will meet our needs with these things that He's created. Love is not to be worshipped. Love is to be experienced, and then you worship Him for experiencing it. Plain and simple. Now, when you begin to love the thing that He created rather than Him, they are intrinsically not capable of responding back to you the way God is. You see, worship creates a response from the Father, and it is it is this, well, the Greek word is agape, but it, it, it's, I'm trying to explain it to you. It is this safety. It is this belief. It is this knowing. It's this comfort. It's this security. It's this overwhelming love. It is, I can do anything and everything when, when I know he loves me. I can go through the, wor- the worst of worst things because he loves me. I can can walk through fire because he loves me. I can walk on water because he loves me. There's this agape. There's this knowing. And when you enter into this worship of him, the agape of God is always there. But when you worship him, it's like your eyes are open to it. And you realize it. Have you ever noticed, when I talk worship, I'm not talking just singing. I'm talking a lifestyle where my life is aimed at him. Have you ever noticed, though, that when you are in the middle of musical worship and, and there's 
maybe a word or a phrase is in the song, and it opens your eyes to the reality of God on this, this one, and you see him for who he is, and, and something inside of you, your heart, you just want to pour out, just take all of me, God, you know, here I am. And when that happens, there is this usually this revelation, this, this, oh my God, he loves me. And it's overwhelming. Sometimes to the point to where I, I mean, even my own self, I've experienced where all I can do is lay on the ground. I can't get up. I can't sing. I can't utter words. I just lay in his presence because the knowledge and understanding of his love is just, whoa! Now what girlfriend, what boyfriend can you get that from? You can't. You'll never get that from sex. You'll never get that from money. You'll never get that from power. You'll never get that from love. You'll only get that from him. And it was made that way. Great, let me give you something about marriages. A good marriage for a marriage to work. And Callie and I have had to find this out the hard way. Because she's so gorgeous, it would be easy for me to worship her. And it's just the way she's sweet, she's nice, she's beautiful. She's perfect. I mean, she's just like God made Eve, and then he's like, one more, made Callie, and then he broke the mold. Right? I mean, she's just, she's it. And it really honestly was easy in our marriage for me to worship her. And what that did is it created jealousy in me because I was never good enough for her. And so anytime she spoke to a boy or looked at a guy or made mention of a man, my heart broke because she loved someone else. It was never the truth. When you look at God, you recognize you're not good enough for him. And yet at the same time, that, there's that overwhelming love that says, but you're still embraced by me. And, and, and he, then he tells you, but, and I'm jealous for you, right? When you worship your spouse, they can't give you that. And so you put this, you, you, you're inviting cruelty into your life. When I would worship my wife and I realize, oh, how awesome and incredible and wonderful, I don't deserve this God, she couldn't return back to me what only God could, which was this overwhelming sense of, I'm jealous for you. She couldn't. It wasn't in her nature. God didn't create her to have the ability to return worship. And so over the years, after me threatening divorce after divorce after divorce, and finally one day she said, okay. Wait a minute, okay? You see, the idea of threatening divorce was to make her feel as insecure as I felt. But then when she decided she was going to play poker and actually call me on it, we got to find out what my problem is because I'm about to lose the best-looking woman in the world. What's going on? And what we found out was is I worship her. And that was killing our marriage. When I became a worshiper of God instead of a worshiper of my wife, it allowed me to love her properly with no jealousy, no sense of I've got to hold on to you so that nobody else could ever be around you. 
a sense of I can let her be absolutely free because even if she ran away, I'm secure in God. Which then gave her the freedom to never want to run away, to want to stay, to want to be part of this crazy guy's life. Because why? She was free. Why was she free? Because I didn't have to hold on to her anymore. My security was no longer found in what my wife thought. My security was found in what my God thought. He took my worship, and he gave me the sense of security. When I worshiped my children, they let me down, break my heart. When I worship money, I can't get enough, or I have too much and spend it too fast, and it lets me down. When I worship power, I just want more and more and more, and then there's nobody to have power over because they all hate me. Any addiction there is, it stems from the fact that somebody's worshiping it. Sex addiction, narcotics, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, you're worshiping something else. And that something that you're worshiped has turned on you and is now destroying your life. We don't all worship the same God. Most of us don't even worship a God. We worship something he created to be good for us. And by worshiping it, we've turned it into something to destroy ourselves. Last one, and I'm done. This one's fun. Christians will live in heaven for eternity in a really, really big mansion. Yeah, we will. No, you won't. Well, the Bible says so. If you're reading the King James, it does. You're right. If you're reading one that actually translated it correctly, it doesn't. Uh, John chapter 14. Go there with me. John 14. I'm not against the King James. It's just that we don't speak King James at all. John 14 verse 2. Tell you what, if you would, go to verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many, and some translations say mansions. And this is where we get this idea. In my Father's house are many, the ESV has it right, rooms. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you that. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be, and you know the way where I am going. And he doesn't, Thomas doesn't, and basically Jesus is saying, I'm about to die, buddy, and one day you're going to get to experience it too. So I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many rooms. Many rooms. Um, go with me. There's a couple things here we have to really look at that we have to we, we have to get past. Did you know that the majority of Americans do not believe in a physical bodily resurrection? And I'm talking about the Christian Americans. Do you know why? Because they've created a pagan myth where they don't have to have a physical bodily resurrection. 
Because when you die, you get to go to heaven, you live in these big mansions, and you'll recognize each other and be in your spirit body for all eternity. Yay. Why have a resurrection? See, with that myth, you don't have to have a resurrection. So most Christian Americans no longer believe in a physical bodily resurrection. Guess what that's led to? It's a very interesting coincidence. Most Christian Americans are now doubting the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Because you don't need one to be happy now. You don't need one for God's plan to be satisfied and and fulfilled. It just doesn't need to happen now because we get to live in mansions and our little cool spirit bodies forever and ever and ever. So the Greek word here is actually, it simply means small abiding place. Small abiding place. The same word, its Hebrew equivalent, means tent or tabernacle. Do you know what a a tent or tabernacle was? It was a temporary location uh, for for God to dwell, the tabernacle. A temporary location. That's the truth of the matter. So what Jesus says here is, I go to where my Father is, and I'm going to prepare temporary dwelling places for you to stay. And if it weren't so, I'd tell you it wasn't so. But it's so. You to come hang out with me temporarily. Why temporarily? Well, go with me to the best news of the gospel. Revelations chapter 21. I almost forgot where Revelation was there for a second. Wow. Revelations chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. That was a brain toot. All right. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and a phone went off, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Can I ask you a question? Who is the bride of Christ? Church. So New Jerusalem is an image of not a real building, but of the church. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and and every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for those words are trustworthy and true. And he said to them, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the, the one who conquers will have the, the, this heritage, and I will be his God, and they will be my son and daughters. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the adulteries, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, sulfur which is the second death. In verse 9, then it talks about the new Jerusalem, which again, I say, I believe, is the actual image of the church. Now, here's what we got. Heaven 
is a temporary place for your spirit. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Heaven is the throne room of God and the earth is his footstool. That's what the, that's what the psalmist tells us. To be absent from the body is to be in the courts of God, if you will, in spirit form. Now, I want you to think about this. Have, you, have any of you guys ever seen a human spirit? I have not. I have not. You know, no scientist has ever been able to see it or find it. Pretty much everybody knows it's there. There are those who go by the myth of atheism that say it doesn't exist. But man, there's even some good atheists now that think there's something going on. Right? Like they, there, there's something to this spirit thing, even though we don't think we live forever. Right? There's something to it. So, but the truth is you can't see a spirit. Have you ever seen God? No. No man has seen God. No one who's seen God is Jesus. Jesus has seen God. The only image of God that we've been able to see is Jesus, God in human form. So a spirit is something that, that is not necessarily visible. It's not tangible. It's not something you can just walk up and grab a hold of and hug. Why does a spirit need a physical mansion? It doesn't. It doesn't. So that's one. You're in spirit when your body is in the ground and decaying. You're, you're a spirit in the presence of the Lord. You don't need a physical house to hold you. The other problem with that concept is it, it creates a group of people that lust for God only so they can get something in the next life they couldn't get in this life. God should be enough. I mean, you think about this. If your goal for heaven is a mansion, I'm not convinced you're actually saved. Because your goal should be God. That He's your reward. You're reconciled to the Father, the creator of everything, the one who breathed the stars into existence. He's your reward. Not a mansion. Third, tells us that uh, we will be given crowns at this judgment. Any of you know, know your Bibles? What happens then with the crowns? We throw them at the feet of Jesus. Why are you getting a mansion? You're just going to give it to him anyway. I mean, think about that. If, if Jesus was saying, I'm building a big Donald Trump tower for you. And you got it at the judgment. And, and there was no physical resurrection. We just Because with this theory, you have to dismiss half the Bible anyway. You would just give it right back to him according to Scripture. Now, what Jesus is teaching here is, is that there is a physical resurrection. And your home is temporarily going to be in the courts of God. But there will be a day coming... When the dead in Christ, and actually all the dead, will be raised, their bodies reconstituted from dust to dust, and then, boom. And every human being will be judged, the Bible says. Those in Christ, you've been prejudged. Jesus took your guilty verdict so he could give you his innocent verdict. 
But then Scripture also says you'll still be judged by your words and your deeds. Jesus says that. And that's where rewards are are dealt with, I guess. I don't really understand that whole thing. I'm just going to be happy for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I know I made it. I just want to hear him say, well done. That's it. I'll be happy with that. But Scripture then goes further and says, after this judgment is over, there is this renewed heaven and earth. And they, in essence, collide together and become one existence. God's throne is now his footstool as well. Your very existence is now surrounded not just spiritually by God, but physically by God. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now, how many of you like to hunt? Any hunters? Couple? I've got a lady hunter and all you guys are hands down. You got to be kidding me. All right, that's fine. How many of you like to be outdoors? Okay. Let me ask you this, okay? Would you rather spend your eternity cleaning a mansion? Because I'm telling you what, they get dusty. And it's on, it's on a renewed earth. So you can't tell me there's not going to be a little dust going on. So it gets dusty, right? I, nobody's going to be your maiden servant. You're going to serve one another. That's no fun to clean. I've, I've got a five-bedroom home, and I hate it. I, I, I've got a the basement, and it's, ugh, I don't even want to walk down there. It's like clothes everywhere. Right? I'm looking forward to all my kids leaving so I can buy a one-bedroom home. We'll have an outhouse. Don't even have to clean it. It can just be aired out. Right? I hate cleaning the house. I don't want a mansion. I want a new earth where it's not dying and decaying, to where it's not being destroyed by sinful people, to where it can be appreciated in its full, awesome beauty. I want to be able to wake up every day and never have to worry about anyone dying and be able to see the sunset and never have to worry that there will be sorrow on my heart as I watch this beautiful sunset. But every single day, I can praise his name as the sun rises and as the sun sets. There's no more tears. There's no more sorrows. And I'm in a physical body to enjoy every bit of it. Now that is exciting to me. I will get to fish. And I've told all, and I don't even like to fish, but I will do it. Because I will have an eternity for brand new experiences. But the biggest thing for me is I get to play catch with my brothers, all three of them. My dad, who is a believer now, who has the peace of God resting in his heart, will get to play catch with all of his boys. How cool is that? Now, in a spiritual make-believe mansion, you don't get to because you may break the windows. truth is there's a lot of things we believe that aren't in the bible and they actually end up hurting they actually you tell a 20 some or a teenage kid that when you die you get a mansion and that will be cool that will appease to their to you know their selfish nature right but if you really really 
want to, want to you know, get people to believe, tell them the truth. That this world is so screwed up and so messed up. And, and nobody wants to be here anymore. We all want out. Nobody likes it. There's just death everywhere. We're scared to death of ice is this, ice, ice is that. Political system reeks. And then you have to deal with family tragedies, abuses, drugs, men using women, all different types of craziness in this world. And you tell the people, you don't get a mansion. You get an earth with no corruption. No more sin. No more spousal abuse. No more addictions. You'll never be used by another man in your life. You will be appreciated forever. You'll never be abused by your father or your mother ever again. It will never happen. But the one, the only father, will wipe away your tears and embrace you every day. The world will not fall apart. There will be no terrorists. There will be no hate. And you get to be part of this world the way it was meant to be for eternity. I'm choosing that over a mansion. And 90% of all people would too. The reason why the whole spiritualizing everything becomes a problem is because it becomes unbelievable and undesirable. It really does. Nobody wants to float around in nobodies forever and ever and ever. I mean, that kind of gets dull. I mean, it makes me think of like a, a glass house that, that's all way too sanitized. You know, and there's, there's no, I want a little dust. I don't want to clean the dust. I want a little dust, though. Right? I don't want something that's all too sanitized and not real. And the scripture gives us reality. Reality. Now, we have to get to the place where we read our Bibles and actually know what our Bibles say. I mean, that's where it comes down to. And sometimes you have to read more than just one translation. Because like I said, as good as the King James translation is, not one of you in your life has ever spoke King James. And so sometimes it gets a little bit hard to understand. So check out a few other versions. They're done. We're done. Let's pray.